Sound. Sound. Music. Acoustic. Noise. Sound. I have a favorite sound, I think. Sounds. Ultrasonic. How they listen. Just a little boop. The one place where it sounds the best. You're listening to sound. Sound matters. <laughs> now, what if I was to begin by trying to reach down inside of the deepest, darkest parts of your memory? The bits of you that make you, well, who you are, really. I promise you it won't hurt and cannot cause personal injury, but please, if you can, try this thing. Try to conjure up in your head a piece of music. See what comes to mind. And then see if you can't find a piece of music in your mind that reminds you of being very, very young. Something from your childhood. I'll just give you a few seconds. Now the chances of me guessing the music that you could hear in your head, if you can hear it, are almost zero. But I am guessing that something came to mind, even a flash. There's something there. You remember music from way back when. And maybe you can't even put your finger on exactly what piece of music it was, who wrote it, what the words were to the song, anything like that. But something remembers the music. It's all there, printed inside your mind. Am I right? Well, my name is Tim Hinman, and you're listening to Sound Matters, a podcast about sound and things that matter. Now, that piece of music, whatever it was that you managed to conjure up, and I hope you did, well, you can just leave it hanging there for a while in your memory, because we're going to get back to it. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be looking at how music can imprint itself on our memory so deep that it's still there even when more or less everything else has left us. I thought about calling this episode The Sound of Music for a while, till it conjured up images of myself spinning round in circles with my arms flung wide on top of a mountain somewhere in Austria. In fact, this program begins somewhere much more familiar for me, in any case, the countryside in England. In this episode, we're meeting Paul Robertson. I'm Paul Robertson. Now, Paul is a musician, a violinist, to be precise, and a very good one at that. For most of my life, I formed and then led the Medici String Quartet. Paul Robertson has also been interested in brain science since his early 20s. And just to give you an indication of how far back that is, this was then the startling new insight and news that uh, the left and right brain hemispheres had broadly different functions and that our perception of the world is made up of a mixture of both. At that time, Paul began a long working relationship with neuropsychologist Dr Peter Fennick, trying to find out how and why the mind listens to and appreciates music. Because obviously there's very little point engaging in something like music just as wallpaper or, or you know, or just a background noise of course it's more profound than that. The brain science totally supports that view. Therefore, it must have a role in what makes us human. 
Music makes us human. It's part of what we are. It's not just entertainment, fun, something to listen to. It's almost impossible to imagine people without music. Why is it that nearly every significant human event is marked by music? You couldn't imagine, say, a marriage without music. Or a funeral without music. Or, or if you look at our particular culture, every single public event is marked by music. You couldn't even imagine a rugby match or a football match without a form of music. I mean, all right, it may be a little bit, for some of us, slightly uncouth, but you know what? A whole group of people singing together is bonding, and that actually both tells all of those people who they are. It's the most powerful reminder of who they are, what they are, and with whom they belong. Music, in whatever shape or form it appears, from lullabies sung to babies by their mothers, to catchy pop tunes, religious music to tacky commercial jingles, to something like what you can hear here in the background. That's the sound of 70,000 Welsh rugby fans singing the Welsh national anthem in harmony. Music is so important to forming us as human beings that we just wouldn't be ourselves without it. Paul's musical career and his interest in scientific research developed into working with sick people, often elderly people. For a long time, Paul says, he'd drag his string quartet around hospitals to play for patients and doctors. One thing that really stuck out for Paul during this process was something that happens when you play music for people who have lost, well, essentially, themselves. People suffering from Alzheimer's, dementia. Uh, one of the things that I noticed and began to appreciate more and more was that people with uh, Alzheimer's typically, it's very often not that the memories have been lost, it's their ability to find the memories that have become uh, a sort of a, it's like a lost key. Some years ago, Paul was making a film about music and dementia and he witnessed something remarkable. We were able to film a, a lovely lady who was deeply demented, I mean, very sad, she no longer even seemed to recognise her own family. She had no sense of herself, she couldn't speak, and so on and so forth. Um, somebody in the family remarked that she'd been a, a fine pianist. And thank goodness there was a piano in the room. And uh, so she was led to the piano, and somebody else in the family thought to start singing a hymn. Now, this was the very most beautiful thing to both well, it was beautiful to behold, but it was even more lovely to be present to. Mysteriously, and in a way that she could not... Indeed, let's face it, none of us could explain how this happened, but we thank God we're organised this way. Her hands moved to the keyboard. Not only that, but what was quite remarkable is they moved to the correct key for what she was hearing, so that, so that even the ability to recognise pitch was still completely present. And she started playing full harmony all the hymns that were being sung. And she would remain there, happy, laughing, vivacious, 
clearly alive in herself until the singing stopped and she put her hands down and then she just switched off. It was, and you know, it was just like she was back to that other place. Who we are at a past time is what we can reach very easily when dementia sets in. So, and you can actually track how far back someone is going. So, you know, uh, the musical taste becomes simpler and there comes a point where even children's songs uh, and and even prosody, that is the, you know, just the which is the first kind of coherent musical correspondence or communication we have, that will become the place of communication and memory. That's ourselves. Well, we're built on that. And of course, the beautiful thing about music is that it's non-verbal. So, just as the smell of baking or the smell of coffee or the the shape of a of something that's well designed actually stimulates an appropriate response from us so it is with music and there and a lot of that is for want of a better word hardwired hardwired that's why paul argues that people suffering from dementia like the woman at the piano, can bring back memories buried so deep that they consciously maybe don't even know where they come from. It sounds convincing, but it's an odd and very hard to quantify kind of science. All we can really rely on is looking at people and seeing how they react. It's pretty impossible to imagine that one day you'll be able to prescribe specific kinds of music for people who have lost their memories in order to bring them back. It'll be hard to know what the right music would be. Imagine yourself in this situation, in the old folks' home, some years from now. What would you like them to play for you? But what's become evident through Paul's and many other studies is that our awareness of music begins much earlier, perhaps, than we think. We begin to uh, appreciate not just music, but actual specific pieces well before we're born, when we're in, u in utero. Um, so this is a sort of basic building block. And of course, what's now understood far better, although by no means fully deciphered, is that music probably is an underlying skill that allows us to go on and make many other things that we prize more immediately, like language, spoken language particularly. And so the theory goes that no music, no language. You need music in order to be able to learn how to speak. And human beings are the only creatures on the planet that do that. No other, even the higher mammals, as far as we can tell, don't entrain in that way, not to sound, not to rhythmic sound. So that might be a unique human uh, fingerprint. Of course, when, when we come to people whose what should we call it, fabric of identity is under stress, which, by the way, is not only dementia, it happens in lots of situations, including uh, traumatic breakdown or psychosis or other forms of mental illness and so on and so forth, then we need to have support or mechanisms of support which will allow us to find our way back to ourselves. People who suffer injuries, people who end up in coma, often find themselves in a place where nothing can reach them, except 
perhaps, music. Now this is something Paul Robertson knows far more than most, and it's not just a scientific study. This is something he's tried for himself. So when I slipped into a coma after a, a massive, very complex piece of heart surgery, um, my wife, thank goodness, had the good sense to do what I'd always been <laughs> busy standing on stage promoting. She played, in fact, in my case, it was my own recordings. And at virtually all stages, even in coma, we remain musically responsive. So she was playing me very particularly, she noticed that the Mozart clarinet quintet recording that now, I don't say that this is unique to this particular recording, not by any means, but it, as soon as that came on, uh, and the doctors and nurses would all remark that they would then turn the, the, the painkillers right down because my function would become so placid. Now, the odd thing is that I never heard any of this music where I was. Uh, what I heard from time to time was a beautiful, consoling sound of a uh, an Indian woman's voice singing ragas. Most exquisite ragas. There was quite a lot of hell in where I was too, but those moments were so beautiful. And they, they were like a divine force. Now, if you want to be really kind of reductive about this, you'd argue that, of course, I was also on massive doses of mind-altering drugs in order to <laughs> survive. So, you know, my actual apparatus of perception were, was altered, and, and therefore I was on tripping, if you like. Tripping. Well, the, the thing about Indian ragas is that they're microtonal that is they, they as it were if you're not a musician when you look at a keyboard or you hear a keyboard most of their music actually lies in the cracks in between the black and the white notes that's what makes it so exquisite so beautiful and so difficult to listen to I spent, say, six weeks, although, of course, there was no sense of, no ordinary sense of passing time. And there was this occasional beautiful voice, like an angel, um, an auditory angel. And then suddenly, <laughs> and it really was this sudden, um, suddenly I heard my wife speaking to me. And uh, I opened my eyes and I was back 
My own theory for its worth is that actually my cognitive functions, the higher functions of my brain, were effectively not functioning at all. I was not present in the ordinary sense. And in that way, probably not totally dissimilar to someone in a dementia, because it's higher function that tends to go first. So what I was picking up was, was what I think was actually raw sound. And I believe that raw sound, raw musical sound, is actually, for example, not tuned the way that we tend to believe it is. And I won't go into the complexities of that, but as you probably know, we've created a fascinating, mostly workable fiction in tuning what's called the Pythagorean Gap, the natural harmonic series. Um, so we believe that we're hearing all sorts of tonalities and tunings, which actually we're subtly not. And I think what I was actually hearing was what you might call... Uh, what was like the ancient ancestor of sound, of musical sound. Paul's experience of spending six weeks in a deep coma has led him to a unique and very personal understanding of the very essence of music as a building block for who and what we are. Without music, we'd simply be something other than human beings. And if we map out the music that's formed us throughout our lives, deep down inside us, then maybe, one day, we could even use that music to repair ourselves when things go wrong. I believe that along with, of course, the, the hope of a, of a biomedical intervention that could arrest or even possibly uh, begin to mend some of the damage of dementia, what we'll do is a piece of, I would call it almost personal, it's a very dry way to put it, personal hygiene, is carry our soundtracks, carry the history of our soundtracks, because in a way that's what we already are anyway. Each one of those soundtracks is, as it were, a sort of mirror of who we are at a given time. It's often been said that you are what you eat. Well, it may well be just as true that you are what you hear. That concludes the second episode of Sound Matters. Thank you very much to Paul Robertson. This edition of Sound Matters was written and produced by myself. My name is Tim Hinman. Paul Robertson was interviewed and edited by Andrea Rangecroft. This podcast is made possible with the help of B&O Play. Find out more about them on beoplay.com. Sound matters.